Hello and welcome to MapBytes episode 143. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, it's redesign, redesign, redesign. But first, Bezos Biometrics hit the headlines again this week when some tech-savvy senators wrote to the Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, pressing the company for more information about how it scans and stores customer palm prints for use in some of its retail stores. No news of reply yet, but want to watch. If you're wondering why Jeffy Boy wasn't involved in this, let me enlighten you. He was otherwise engaged. He had a very important delivery at home, a soft-serve ice cream machine. You're wondering how I know that, aren't you? Well, handily, the installation engineer posted a photo of the equipment just before he installed it all for Jeff. Trips to space last month, always on ice cream maker this month. One can only speculate just what next month will bring. Remember last week when we talked about Apple's redesign of their original redesign of Safari? Oh, indeed. It's seared onto my poor brain. Brace yourself, then. Yes, they've redesigned the redesign of the original redesign. Oh, make it stop. It's seemingly such a simple thing. Where is your browser's address bar? And if you had a choice, where would you prefer it to be? I'd rather the interface got out of the way. Because while consistency is welcome, I much prefer customization options. Not something Apple are big on. But, against all expectations, Apple have added a preference for the location of the address bar. For me, the address bar belongs at the top. That's where my eyes and fingers are drawn to. By all means, experiment, listen to feedback and provide a placement option. Now, if they'd only do that with the tabs in numbers. No, Mike. What are you thinking bringing that up again? Oh, don't get me going. It looks like it's too late for that. Numbers used to have tabs on the left of the screen. They were perfect. You can obviously visually scan many more tab titles than you can if they're pinned to the bottom, like in Excel, or to the top of the sheets, like in later versions of Numbers. The rationale at the time of the change was to make it match the iOS version, where it was buttery smooth to swipe the tab strip. And while it might be, it's still not logical, nor as efficient as the vertical tab stack. Why not just give us the option to place the tabs wherever we want? Vivaldi have done just that. I prefer the left, you prefer the top. D during after hours said anything other than the top is sacrilege. But as far as I'm concerned, choice is where it's at. Although I'm not sure who would ever choose to have the address bar floating inelegantly above the content. So, a brownie point for Timmy this week. Keep it up, dear boy. Not only Apple redesigning the redesign either. No, Twitter are at it too. This follows last week's news of the Twitter redesign causing headaches, eye strain and general consternation. Now I'm the first to complain about anyone moving my cheese, but I honestly haven't even noticed a 1% difference to my Twitter experience with any of these changes. Using the Twitter website is just as bad as it's always been. Just marginally, not as bad as Facebook. Do you know, with the resources and the so-called expertise that these companies can call upon, it makes me wonder if these mistakes are deliberate. The companies get a ton of free publicity and then they can claim that they're listening to users as they make changes. Conspiracy theory alert. Let me get my tin hat on. More now on my iCloud woes. 
In the last show, we covered listener Barry's iCloud sync problem, and I talked about my Ulysses sync problem. We left you at the point that Ulysses support had asked me to send them some log files, which I duly did, and within a couple of hours, they came back with a diagnosis. After thoroughly analysing your logs, we have reason to believe that your iCloud setup might be corrupted in general, since several programs utilising iCloud Drive have trouble synchronising. They asked me to create a Time Machine or iTunes backup in case something goes wrong, for which read, for when it all goes wrong. Then log off iCloud completely on all your devices and log back in. Should you need further help, please contact Apple support directly via their iCloud support. They should be able to assist you in resolving this issue. The reply included a screenshot of part of the log files, which I couldn't make head nor tail of. It was just a load of numbers. Having said that, there were two references to the desktop in the screenshot. Although I've got sync desktop and documents enabled in the iCloud settings on both Macs, it's been very hit and miss to say the least. I tend to use the desktop as a temporary storage area, but there's temporary and there's temporary. I'm sure we all put files on the desktop and then move them to their forever home at the end of the day. Or at least that's the intention. I've got files on my desktop that have been there for weeks. If the Mac dies, the files are in the cloud, was my thinking. Well, that was a mistake. The desktop of the iMac in the studio does sync to iCloud. Files that I put on the desktop on that Mac magically appear on the desktop of the Mac in the office. However, the opposite isn't true. Files placed on the desktop of the Mac in the office, and that's the Mac that I use most, don't get synced anywhere. In fact, it was worse than that. I had a folder on the desktop of both Macs containing four screenshots for a blog post I'd written. Ooh, sync worked, I thought. Well, it turned out that both folders were empty. Luckily, I found the four files in a folder in the iCloud Drive archive folder. And I'll be coming back to the infamous iCloud Drive archive folder in a minute. But back to logging out of iCloud. It's not as straightforward as clicking or tapping a sign out button. On a mobile device, you're prompted to enter your Apple password to turn off Find My iPhone or turn off Find My iPad. The same thing happens on a Mac. Enter your password to turn off Find My Mac. I guess the logic behind this is for people who are selling their device. Otherwise, you could still track it even when it's no longer yours. What I didn't know, because I haven't set it up, is that you also need to turn off screen time before you can sign out of iCloud. There's a link in the show notes that explains it all. I mentioned the iCloud Drive archive folder. Every time you sign out of iCloud on a Mac, a folder is created inside your user folder. And this folder holds a local copy of all the data from your iCloud Drive account. So you can still access it without using iCloud. If you log out of iCloud and there's already an iCloud Drive archive folder on your Mac, another folder is created with the same name and a number appended to the end. And I now have three such folders taking up almost 20 gig of space on my Mac's hard drive. I've put a link in the show notes to a very comprehensive article that explains all about the iCloud Drive archive folder and when it's safe to delete it. Something I'll be poring over in my attempt to regain disk space without losing anything. I'd like to thank the support team at Ulysses for their time, but it looks like I'll have to file this one under It's All Apple's Fault. 
Will I go through the logout of iCloud on all devices routine? Well, they did say all devices. Assuming they meant all devices, not only would I have to log out of my iMacs, iPads and iPhones, but I'd also have to log out of my watch. And if I had one, my HomePod and my Apple TV. At least when you sign out of iCloud on the iPhone that's paired with the watch, you'll be automatically signed out of iCloud on your watch. But life's too short, and as I've got Dropbox to do the syncing, Ulysses shall work just fine. So, what you're saying is, it's broken. You know it's broken. Apple know it's broken. But leaving it alone is going to preserve your mental health. To fight a more worthy Apple-related battle somewhere down the line. According to a new report by Toronto-based research institute, the Citizen Lab, Apple is censoring words and phrases that customers in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan can have engraved on products. The engraving service is available as a free option when ordering AirPods, AirTags, Apple Pencil, iPad and iPod Touch. Apple openly admits that it filters the engraving requests to avoid racist language, vulgarities or intellectual property violations. But the Citizen Lab says the company's restrictions of political references in Hong Kong and Taiwan particularly go above and beyond legal requirements. They found that the company filters over a thousand keywords in China, compared to 542 in Hong Kong, 397 in Taiwan, 206 in Canada, 192 in Japan and 170 in the US. For AirTag engravings, which are limited to four characters, Chinese customers are not allowed to use the four numbers 8964, which refer to the Tiananmen Square protests, which took place on June the 4th, 1989. Apple has recently showed it will make political accommodations to preserve its presence in China, which accounts for nearly a fifth of its total revenues. Apple responded by saying it filters engraving requests with respect to local laws, rules and regulations, but it didn't address any criticism that it was overzealous in its censorship in Hong Kong and Taiwan. So who's right in this case? I don't profess to being a political commentator, nor do I understand the political situation in China. So in true political style, I'm going to sit on the fence on this one. You could argue this one either way. Observing local laws is the price of doing business. But the implication of the articles is that Apple are colluding with those potentially infringing on their citizens' human rights. Apple could certainly afford to stop selling in China. 20% of their revenue would be a huge loss, but they could do it. And Apple have already threatened to pull out of the UK because they didn't like the judgment of a UK court. So the eyes of the world will be on you with that one, Apple. But I'd seriously question the wisdom of the entire engraving programme. Since the service is free, it's a cost to Apple. And I honestly can't see anybody deciding not to buy a device because Apple don't engrave them anymore. So just dump it. Avoiding the grief is certainly one option. The only device I'd even think of having engraved is an AirTag. And even then it would only be so I knew which one was which. Engraved gear also means exchanging devices is more tricky. I was in the Apple store, obviously, that was a while back. My iPhone 6 Plus had died, and once the genius confirmed it was dead, she simply gave me a new one. Next to me was a girl with a dead iPad. 
which I had overheard was critical to her studies at university and dutifully all backed up. She watched my experience and was on the verge of breathing a sigh of relief when the genius dealing with her explained that she'd have to wait for a replacement to be posted out as they didn't replace engraved devices in store. I had no idea. She looked like she was about to cry. I think they should explain this at the point of purchase. But I definitely think, surely it's an option, just dump it. It's not generating revenue. Lose it. I'm surprised it's still there, to be honest. You're loving this next story, aren't you? Oh, I am. It's Timmy's Covid Hokey Cokey. One minute they're in, the next minute they're out. In out, in out, shake it all about. That's the one. First, Apple were back to hosting in-store classes again from the 30th of August. Before the digital ink had dried on that press release, another one arrived saying, oh no, they weren't. Then came the news that shop staff didn't need a Covid passport, followed by the news that they did need to be tested frequently, which could well have been in light of an Apple store shutdown in Charleston, South Carolina, where 20 Apple employees were exposed to Covid. The most interesting part of that report was the closing comment which stated, an Apple spokeswoman declined to comment. Nice. Not. Then there was the corporate working in the office side of the whole thing to consider. Apple decided that stirring the pot that is the increasingly rampant collective, henceforth known as the Apple employees, wasn't a good idea. At least this side of the holiday season it wasn't. So the August return to work became the September return to work, that then became the October return to work. It's now the 2022 return to work. You'll notice there's no month mentioned there, although there is a promise of 30 days notice whenever it is. Sidestepping the issue there, hey Timmy. Or at least until the Christmas sales have rung up anyway. Next up, a story of an adult nature. Have you heard of OnlyFans? You might need to sit down for this one, but yes, I actually have. Do enlighten me. This is going to take some delicate explaining. It's where people for which read fans pay influencers for special access to them. You're going to have to be more precise there. I'm getting there. This is tricky, you know. So OnlyFans is an online platform with an associated app and it arrived in 2016. People, users, for which read fans, can pay for content such as exclusive photos and videos, live streams and more via a monthly membership. The content is mainly created by YouTubers, fitness trainers, models, content creators, public figures. And the idea is that they monetize what they do. Now, given that list of content, you're probably already ahead of us in imagining what is most popular on this platform. And yes, you'd be right. It's entertainment of an adult nature. But, you know, consenting adults and all that. So all good so far. Except that this week, OnlyFans pulled the rug from under their creators of adult content. Changes to their terms and conditions are going to go live later this year and they'll prohibit certain content of an adult nature. You might be wondering why they would do this, given the majority of their revenue is generated from those very users. And it seems it wasn't their idea. <laughs> Nobody deliberately shoots themselves in the foot, do they now? Their statement said the changes were, and I quote, to comply with the requests of our banking partners and payout providers. 
So, it's the big banks, specifically the credit card payment processing services thereof, and they have cried foul. Why? Well, they're obviously concerned about the morally dubious nature of the content. Obviously, not bothered them for the last five years, but all of a sudden, they have their collective panties in a tangle. I wouldn't mention panties if I were you. Well, quite. I don't understand the big banks attempting to enforce their own definition of morality on customers or businesses. As long as a service or the content of a service isn't illegal, what's it got to do with them? The big banks should keep out of moral judgments unless they apply them 100% equally across the board. And in these circumstances, they aren't doing that. You can still go to a bookshop and buy a copy of the Karma Sutra, paying by credit card. And you know this how precisely? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. And anyway, the Karma Sutra could be considered art. You keep telling yourself that. So let's consider something more dicey than the Karma Sutra. You can also buy the complete works of the Marquis de Sade at Amazon and pay with your credit card. Before you ask, I know this because I checked. As an aside, I am not looking forward to my recommended for you suggestions for the foreseeable future. Seriously though, if it's not illegal, keep your beak out. Morality is so subjective. And as for these new rules, well, I, I got as far as boobs are okay before having to lie down and take a bit of a drink. But I went back and I could read the entire edict out about what's okay and what isn't. But point one, it would mainly be a series of bleeps. Point two, it would raise more questions than answers. But here's a summary. Apparently, some lady bits are okay. Most boy bits are not okay. The acceptable lady bits are above the waist. Most of the unacceptable bits are below the waist. But not everything below the waist is unacceptable. It depends if it is, quote from the terms, extreme or offensive. Now, if anyone can actually define what extreme or offensive means in these circumstances, please do let me know. But back to subjective much. Anyway, interpreted broadly, it appears that anything more explicit than a cartoon of the Playboy Bunny, with rabbit ears covering the adult bits, is potentially at risk of violating these new terms. They have a lot to lose. At the moment, OnlyFans have 200 employees, 150 million registered users and over 1.5 million content creators. They say that they have paid out over 3 billion in creator earnings since their founding in 2016. And there were some quotes from Twitter. One was from journalist and labour organiser Kim Kelly. And she wrote, OnlyFans would be nothing without the sex workers whose labour built it up into a major platform. Now it's tossing them aside and removing a vital source of income from a population of workers who are disproportionately marginalised and have no protections under US labour law. Then there was telco and antitrust attorney Paul Overbite, who said obviously banning the majority of the content that makes OnlyFans popular could significantly reduce its user base and revenue. Following that up with, did no one at OnlyFans call Verizon to ask how Tumblr worked out? Now, I must admit, I needed to remind myself of the details of that fiasco. But in summary, Yahoo bought Tumblr for $1.1 billion in 2013. Verizon then bought Yahoo's operating business, which included Tumblr, for $4.45 billion in June 2017. 
Verizon then banned adult content on Tumblr, only about six months after buying Yahoo. Verizon then sold Tumblr to Automatic in 2019, and Tumblr by then was worth a fraction of the previous value. The sale price wasn't announced, but it was reportedly well below 20 million. So 1.1 billion to under 20 million. Takes some doing to reduce the value of a company like that, doesn't it? Summary of the whole mess. Big banks and morality in the same sentence. Really? We also had news that SharePlay is being delayed and that it won't make the cut for the first iteration of iOS 15. You might be asking, what is SharePlay? At the point it was announced back in June at WWDC 2021, here's what was said. SharePlay enables shared experiences during a FaceTime session. SharePlay is a new feature that comes along with iOS 15. It allows users to have a shared experience using the Group Activities API. Essentially, whilst on a FaceTime call, anyone can jump to other applications such as Apple Music, Apple TV or any other content streaming platform. And when they hit play, the music or video plays for everyone on the FaceTime session in sync. All the members on the session have access to multimedia controls such as volume and playback options as well as iMessage to communicate. I can see it being a great way to watch the footy with your mates rather than gathering together in the pub or someone's house. Assuming, of course, it's supported by the broadcast companies. However, the general issue of different people having different internet speeds would cause havoc with the sync. Can you imagine it? It's 1-0. Not here it's not. That's a red card. Hang on, not caught up yet. To be honest, I actually wonder if the broadcast companies would even allow it, because from their point of view, it's revenue being left on the table. In a non-share play, no social distancing world, you've got a group of friends meeting up at one person's house to watch the match on their TV using their subscription. But obviously that's not going to be possible if everyone is geographically dispersed. So the equivalent of that is one person with a subscription to Sky Sports or BT Sports, whatever, and several others watching for free via SharePlay. It wouldn't surprise me if the broadcasting companies have got some kind of technology to prevent that happening, because I know BT Sports can certainly do that with that their iOS app. Last week, I took some screenshots during the United match. I wanted to show you the empty seats where our season tickets are, and the screenshots came out completely black, whereas screenshots from other apps were totally fine. So I assume they've deployed some kind of anti-screenshot technology. It's not like I actually wanted to take shots of the action and sell them, was it? Anyway, I got round the problem by watching the game in a browser on the Mac and screen recording it. It sounds like a feature for millennials. Marginally more exciting than makeup on Memojis. Maybe I just don't consume enough content that I'd feel a need to share. Then there's the terrifying thought of being pinged to group watch a movie when I'm doing what I like best. Steady on, potentially TMI. Reading a book. I don't know where your mind is, but I meant reading a book. It wasn't one of those by the Marquis de Sade, was it? No, that was purely for research purposes, and I can assure you I never intend to go there again. But back to the missing in action share play feature, though. It's not the first time that something's been withdrawn from the initial release of a new version of iOS or macOS. 
I think we'll all recall 2018 when the group FaceTime thing was pulled. But before that, there were messages in iCloud, the iPhone portrait mode, AirPlay 2, all flagship features announced with a great deal of fanfare and subsequently delayed. There's an article on Macworld explaining why this is a good thing. <clears throat> I know, drinking the Kool-Aid much, but here's a couple of quotes. By listening to criticism and adjusting course during the summer, Apple has had to eat a little crow and admit that its initial design choices were questionable, but it also avoided the huge PR hit that would have happened on the release of iOS 15. Then there was, whether it's a feature that didn't make it in time or a feature that needed to be rethought and redesigned on the fly, Apple has once again proved it's quite capable of making mistakes. The good news is the company is willing to admit it and to lose a little face during the summer in order to avoid causing unnecessary user pain in the fall. It's a very grown up thing to do, and I'm glad today's Apple is willing to do it. <clears throat> really? I'd rather they didn't make the same mistakes repeatedly and have to course correct every September. Remember the definition of insanity, doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different outcome. Unfortunate the first time, maybe, but by the tenth time, you just look like idiots. Just once, I'd like to be able to sit back and enjoy WWDC, thinking that what they're crowing about might actually see the light of day when the new OSs launch and not be tacked on six months later in a watered down, we've almost forgotten about it kind of way. But that could just be me. Something related to the fallout from the One Password story last week. Not one password, though. It's worse than that. Be afraid. Be very afraid. If you're a Windows user, you might need to hunker down in a bunker right about now. iCloud passwords are coming to Windows. <laughs> I know. iCloud and password management in the same sentence. I need to go and have a quiet lie down, too. And the details are that a new version of iCloud for Windows version 12.5, adds the ability to access and manage passwords saved in iCloud from a Windows machine. Windows users have long requested the ability to access the Mac keychains via Windows, and I, think, I feel that that's definitely a case of be careful what you wish for. Apple's already released a Chrome extension that synced iCloud passwords with Chrome, but just like this new iCloud password app, it did the absolute bare minimum and not much else which might not be a bad thing, given how temperamental iCloud can be. This looks like another case of why don't they just leave things alone? It is, with knobs on. Microsoft, in their collective wisdom, have decided, one, to make changing the default browser in Windows 11 a tinge more tricky, and two, to completely ignore the browser defaults in new areas of the operating system. So there's an initial prompt when you install a new browser and you open a link for the first time. But that's now a one-time deal. It's the only chance that you'll get to change the default without a huge attendant overhead. And even then, it's not simple. Instead of being able to simply click a button inside the, your browser of choice, you'll be sent to the default apps part of the Windows settings in order to enable it. If you miss this single opportunity, then your only option after the fact is to set a default browser app for each extension. Now, before you think that doesn't sound that bad, there are 11 extensions that would need to be set. HTM, HTML, 
PDF, SHTML, SVG, WebP, XHT, XHTML, FTP, HTTP and HTTPS. While I like the granularity of doing it this way, doing the same thing up to 11 times is madness. I'd also question the logic of PDF, SVG and WebP extensions being grabbed by the browser. Those files, one would have dedicated applications to view them, but two, they would probably have dedicated applications to edit them. And I'd much prefer to map those to an editor. So here's hoping that Apple don't get wind of this and decide to follow suit. I mean, they've only just enabled the change the default option in iOS. Please don't go back on that now. I seriously don't want to even contemplate that happening on macOS. I've taken the concept of which browser opens which pages to extremes for years. I've used browser chooser apps. So back in the day, it was highbrow and choosy. But they both withered on the vine, unfortunately, and I had to switch to the stupidly named Browser Fairy. I dumped that when that went subscription. I am now happily using Browser Ninja, but there's also OLW, which is open links with. Those all allow you to send pages from specific sites to specific browsers. So I use Chrome Canary for sites that don't let you read anything without disabling your ad blocker, for example. And whichever one of the apps you use, it really doesn't matter as long as it works for you. It's an absolutely essential app. So fingers crossed that does not come to Mac anytime soon. Europe want all phones to use a standard interface. Just a minute. Isn't this reminiscent of the Bananagate fiasco? Bananagate? Oh, yes. Years ago, when the EU decided to standardise the curve of a banana. As you can imagine, the UK papers went wild. And while the EU have tried to write it off as a myth, there is an EU directive that classifies bananas according to their curvature. The hope is with a standard charging cable, they won't feel the need to specify an acceptable bend of said cable. But stranger things have happened. I would say that as we're no longer in the EU, this doesn't affect us. But then I remembered we, st we still participate in the Eurovision Song Contest and English teams still participate in the European Cup. Although best not mention Euro 2020. If Europe force Apple to use a USB-C in Europe, the UK are going to be lumped in with it, be honest. As long as users are able to charge their devices, they probably won't give it a second thought. But it does have an impact on Apple's stance on not including a charger, because one of their rationales was that folks already had plenty of chargers. But you change the charging system, though, and that's not necessarily true anymore. Potentially, it also means a huge increase in discarded charging bricks and cables. I'm assuming Apple won't be minded to set up a swap shop of old for new. That potential mass of discarded equipment is on the EU's radar. Their two stated concerns are, one, consumers needing multiple chargers for their devices in the absence of a standard type of charger, and two, the impact on the environment of all that extra equipment. However, the full story is much more complicated than that, and we covered a lot of it in MapBytes 137. You know, when I pointed out that video that I'd watched, it was fascinating about the real reason Apple don't include the charger anymore. Basically debunked the whole thing. And Europe, you can't have this both ways. You can't have it that people have got too many chargers and then say, right, so we're going to standardise on one. Can you just throw all the rest away? I mean, what, what are they thinking? But there again, 
I'll just say bananas and carry on. Can I file this next one under Y? Works for me. Do you want to explain it? Oh, I wish I could, but I'll give it a go. Cast your collective minds back to the summer of 2016, when Pokemon Go was at its zenith. My main memory of that is having to explain what Pokemon Go was to our priest. He'd asked why there were random folks wandering around in the church car park, glued to their phones. He was actually incredulous about the explanation. But anyway, back to when Yik Yak was also at its peak. In case you missed it all, like I skillfully managed to at the time, let me enlighten you. It's an anonymous messaging system where you can message random folks within a five mile radius. You are encouraged to, and I quote, talk to the herd. The messages you send are referred to as yaks and yaks get upvotes and downvotes and they're tallied up every 24 hours. Luckily, you need a valid US phone number to participate. So sadly, we won't be able to test this ludicrous concept. I seriously can't understand the appeal of it. One of the specific things that the new owners mention is making safety paramount. No bullying, etc. But come on. Anonymity and safety don't exactly make great bedfellows. If you've used it, use it now or would use it. Do explain the appeal to me. It reminds me of when we introduced your dad to Skype. Your mum had been badgering us to get him on Skype. I think one of his friends had told him, you want to get on Skype. I don't think he actually realised what Skype was. I don't think he realised that it was just another way to communicate with people that you know, instead of the phone or email, or in his case, amateur radio. So I set it up on his laptop. But apart from this one friend of his, none of his other friends were on Skype. So I showed him how to search for someone in the Skype directory. And we ended up just calling some random person, having a conversation with me explaining how I was showing your dad how to use Skype. <laughs> and I felt a right idiot. Oh, you should have walked away and left that one alone. <laughs> anyway, Siri is going to be thrilled at this next piece. That'll be the new Siri improvement programme then. A new app called Siri Speech Study. It won't affect us as it's invitation only and mine must be missing in the post. But looking on the bright side, at least Apple aren't randomly uploading all our data without mentioning it anymore. At least not that we know of anyway. Would you use it? Would I use it? Um, I think my invite, like yours, must be missing in the post. But the fact it's currently not available in the UK might explain that. It's available in 12 countries, US, Canada, Germany, France, Hong Kong, India, Ireland, Italy, Japan, Mexico, New Zealand and Taiwan. But I can't see H-E-Y Siri send a text to Elaine Giles helping the Apple engineers in any way. So no is the answer to that one. As you may know, I'm currently in the midst of a series dedicated to the Vivaldi browser. I've called it 30 days to becoming a Vivaldi lover and it's happening on Twitter during Ship 30 for 30 and it's coming to my blog later this week. If you don't know, Ship 30 for 30 is a writing challenge, writing and more importantly, publishing 30 essays in 30 days. I feel I'm breaking all the rules concentrating on one app for the duration. But since my single atomic essay on Vivaldi last time I was on Ship 30 for 30 was my most viewed post, there's clearly an interest in it. So I started with what Vivaldi is and where it came from. The Vivaldi project was actually born out of the frustration of users of a community-focused opera forum. 
For reasons best known to themselves, Opera decided to close the forum down. Users were frustrated. And these were die-hard Opera users. Rule one, don't upset your biggest fans. But that's exactly what they did. So the users of that forum reformed and gathered around a new project, eventually called Vivaldi. Vivaldi aimed to be all those users had wanted Opera to be. The initial release was back in 2016. As you can imagine, it's difficult for any new browser to gain traction in a if-it's-not-broken world. Most folks just can't be bothered moving. Some, I guess, may fear data loss in the transfer of bookmarks and settings. And then, of course, there's the pain of reconfiguring all the extensions and preferences. Then there's the pain of learning how to do things that they knew how to do before in the old browser. So why bother, right? I've swapped browsers that many times. I have moved from browser to browser for years, usually looking to work faster, but preferably smarter. I've been on the internet since early 1993, and I started with Mozilla back then because, well, there wasn't much choice. There was no search engines back then either. How did we find anything? We bought a paper-based internet directory from WH Smiths. Not even kidding there. I actually did. It was like the yellow pages for the internet. Anyway, I moved on to Netscape Navigator and then on to Internet Explorer before settling with Opera in 2001 and paying £40 for the privilege of doing so. Yes, browsers weren't necessarily free back then. Opera, however, was worth every penny. I loved it. I did spend a fair amount of time writing to websites suggesting they make their site accessible to all browsers, though. And then I switched to the Mac and Opera didn't make the transition with me, although I did try it. The Mac version of Opera was very much a port from Windows. The biggest issue I had was the nightmare of the OK and cancel buttons being the wrong way round. That was especially niggling when I was still very much a new switcher and I was already struggling to get the hang of all the differences between the two platforms to start with. I didn't really mind which button was on the left and which was on the right, but they do need to be consistent across applications. And sadly, Opera didn't make the cut. So the default of Safari it was then, and I stayed with Safari for a good few years before returning to an old friend, Netscape again. I just loved the minimal interface. And then they killed it. By this stage, Google Chrome was finally available for the Mac. And after swearing I wouldn't go there, the lure of the extensions proved too much and I became a Chrome user. I love the extensions, but beyond that, I can't say it ever really felt right. I suffered several quirky annoyances over the time I was using it. The biggest one I remember was Google Maps. It would just display as blank unless I constantly trashed the cache. The fans would go crazy if I opened more than three tabs. And add to that that Google started making some very strange decisions regarding the interface and especially the role of extensions. With that, I was on the move again, this time to Firefox, and I loved it. All the issues that had played Chrome were gone. And then there were the features that were unique to Firefox. Firefox had a labs project that released stuff they were working on. To be honest, probably before it was really ready for prime time. But a couple of the projects were just genius. One was a sidebar. 
It enables you to have a second web page open in this sidebar and be able to reference it or keep an eye on the sports scores, really anything you wanted. I loved it. It didn't take long for me, though, to reach the extent of its capabilities, and I was soon wanting it to do more than it was actually capable of. The lab's nature of the project meant development was erratic, and at any moment, the entire project could just be binned. But the second project that came out of labs was containers. That enabled you to open your sites in ring-fenced containers to stop sites tracking your every move. It automatically ring fences Facebook, for example. Other sites are optional and they're configurable by you. I actually created a separate container for Mike inside my Firefox install. You might be wondering why. Well, let's just say when an Amazon deal comes on after his bedtime and I wanted two of whatever was on offer, I'd just open his container and pretend to be him on my machine without troubling myself to log into his Mac. So there I was, happy with Firefox. So how did this whole Vivaldi thing happen then? Well, I'm known as the browser queen. In my book, you can never have too many browsers. So when I discovered Vivaldi, I downloaded it and installed it. Now, every new browser is going to leave you feeling that your current default browser is easier to stick with. But that's no reason not to give them a chance, though. Before long, I'd configured Vivaldi to act as a host for Notion. I know there's a Notion app. Don't go there. We'd need another three shows to list what's wrong with that monstrosity. So what happened over time was the more I used Vivaldi just for Notion, the more I wished it was my default browser. So you might be thinking, well, why don't you just switch? Well, I'm a menace for having over 100 pages open. I'll be researching something and one rabbit hole leads to another. And before I know it, I have more tabs open than I know what to do with. My rationale at this stage was if I made Vivaldi my default browser, the tab overload issue would simply transfer from Firefox to Vivaldi and interfere with my use of Vivaldi as a Notion host. I needed a plan. So I decided to track what the pages were that I left open and create a better workflow for dealing with them. The majority of the pages were indeed research. Some were for application features that I was in the process of researching. But by far the majority were for Apple related news. Now, while normal folks would probably read the stories and then close the tab, if I decided the story was worth including in MacBytes, I'd need the link for the show notes. Bitter experience has taught me that closing the tab and expecting to be able to locate the link later is not a wise move. I dread to think how much time I've wasted attempting to locate pages lost when I close them without grabbing the URL for future reference. So I set about finding a way to capture the titles and the URLs of a range of open pages, preferably with some degree of automation involved. There were numerous extensions that all offered similar options. However, the only one that formatted them to perfection was built for Google Chrome. So I took it as a sign Firefox was not going to be my primary browser going forward. Luckily, Vivaldi supports Google Chrome extensions and a swift test proved that the days of having an excessive number of browser tabs open were soon to be relegated to the annals of history. So with that problem solved, I set about getting Vivaldi ready to be promoted to my principal browser. Now, believe me, if I'd known then what I know now, I'd have done it months before. But I'll share the next stage of my conversion to Vivaldi next week. 
Back in 2015, I reviewed an app called SQL Pro. There's an audio review in MacBytes episode 99, as well as a post on my blog. For those who've never heard of it, SQL Pro is a Mac app that provides a nice, friendly front end to MySQL databases. Now, I know that sounded like MySQL, as in SQL databases belonging to me. No, MySQL is a database application. But unlike, say, Microsoft Access or FileMaker or Bento, RIP, MySQL isn't a desktop database that you install on your Mac or PC. It's a server-based database. You can install and run it on a Mac or Windows machine, but you'd need to install some server software on the Mac or PC first, something like MAMP, which gives you an environment in which to run MySQL. You'd probably only do that for testing purposes. In the real world, MySQL tends to run on powerful servers, not desktop computers. As well as being the database of choice for some large organizations, including Twitter and Facebook, MySQL is also the database that WordPress uses. Whilst researching, I found that there's around 455 million websites hosted on WordPress. So when you're looking at a post on MacBytes or my blog or Elaine's blog, the content of that post is actually stored as a record in the MySQL database. The database is hosted on a server belonging to SiteGround, and that's the company that we host our sites with. But back to SQL Pro. Why would I need to use an app to access the data stored in the database? If I want to write or edit a blog post, I can do it via the browser-based WordPress editor. Or I could use Ulysses or Mars Edit. These apps let you write the content and publish using a nice friendly editor. If I need to change a setting on my website, I can do that via a browser using the website's WordPress control panel. Well, there's several reasons I use SQL Pro. I've used it to extract information from the database tables. A full list of blog post titles and dates, for example. I've used it to do bulk edits on the data. A good example of that was when we renamed the folder that all the MacBytes audio files are stored in. The name originally included dots, but an update to something caused a problem if there was a dot in the folder name. Renaming the folder on the server was easy, but in the database there were over 100 references to the original folder name, which meant we ended up with a load of broken links. Rather than manually editing each blog post, I used SQL Pro to perform a bulk find and replace. One day, a couple of months ago, I was using SQL Pro. I did whatever I was doing and closed the app and it crashed. I reopened the app and closed it and it crashed again. So the behavior is repeatable. The app still works, but it crashes on exit. As I said, there's no problem using the app, just this annoying crash when I exit. I googled it and I found that many others were suffering the same problem as me. And as well as the crashing, if you're connecting to databases that use MySQL version 8, you'll have problems. If you're using a Mac with an M1 chip, you'll have problems. And the last stable release was in 2016. Now, of course, some apps don't need regular updates, but when it's a front-end client to an ever-evolving database environment, I think it's crucial that it's kept up to date. So I had no option to look for an alternative. I ended up on a forum where several people recommended an app called Table Plus. Table Plus is available for Windows and Mac, and unlike SQL Pro, it's not free. 
The cost is $59 for one computer and $99 for two computers. If you want to install it on more than two computers, you need a custom license, and the cost of that depends on the number of computers. It's not a subscription, and the cost includes a year's worth of updates. After one year from the date of purchase, you can either renew the license to continue updating or keep using the then current build forever without any limitations. Sounds like busy Cal, doesn't it? It's also available on Setup, but of course you're then bound by their licensing agreement, which is one Setup subscription equals one computer. Although you can buy additional seats, as you explained last week when you were talking about Ulysses. There's a free version of Table Plus, which has some limitations. And on their website, they say we can change the limitations without any notifications in future releases, which sounds a bit ominous. Although I guess like investments can go down as well as up, any future changes to limitations could be better or worse than they are now. The current limitation relates to the number of open connections and open windows. There's no limit to the number of connections you can create, but you can only have two connections open at any one time. I usually work with one database at any given time, so that shouldn't be a problem for me. There's also an iOS, iPadOS version, which you can install for free with the same limitations as the desktop version. And to remove those limitations will set you back $40 or £37 per year. Yes, folks, the iOS version is a yearly subscription. In terms of functionality, it seems to do everything that I need it to do. I can open a table. I can view and edit the data. There's a query editor for creating queries using the SQL query language. I can export data to a CSV file. And for database power users, the app includes advanced functionality. You can create tables, you can import data, you can create advanced filters. You can even add frequently used queries to a favorites bar, a real time saver. I was actually at the point of making Table Plus my official replacement for SQL Pro when I stumbled across SQL Ace. It's Mac only. It's available from the Mac App Store and it's free. It actually markets itself as an unofficial SQL, if you pardon the pun, to SQL Pro. I installed it and opened it and it looked the spitting image. Both SQL Pro and SQL Ace are open source and it turns out that SQL Ace is a fork of SQL Pro. So this virtually identical interface was a deliberate decision to help make switching become seamless. The first thing I did was to import all my connections. A connection stores the information needed to connect to a database. Things like the server name, the database name, the username, the password. And with over 30 databases to manage, recreating them manually would have been a tedious task. So I opened SQL Pro and exported the connection definitions to a plist file. Then closed SQL Pro, it crashed, opened SQL Ace and imported the connection definitions. And that import is something that Table Plus can't do. So it is something to consider if you have a large number of databases to connect to. It saved me about an hour's worth of copying and pasting the connection information for each definition. Being there done that. When our hosting company unilaterally changed all the server configuration options and we had to recreate every single connection we had. We're still in the midst of that mess actually, aren't we? Yes, slowly, slowly, as they say. 
The only thing with the import here is that it doesn't import the passwords. And that's because for security reasons, SQL Pro doesn't export them. So after manually adding the passwords to my connections, I gave the app a spin. All the functionality I was used to having in SQL Pro was there in the same location. It really was like working in the same app with a different name. So I think I'm going to stick with SQL Ace. Apart from the fact that it's 100% free, it's a case of better the devil you know, as they say. But it's good to know that if that ever goes belly up, there are alternatives. We're going live again on Friday night with Matt Bytes After Hours. What are you doing? I have Build With Me Vivaldi Part 2 together with the next part of our Scrivener series and I also have an Affinity Designer demo where we're creating a complete icon kit from soup to nuts. What about you? More on Excel, obviously. More on pivot tables or, to be precise, pivot charts. Do join us then. Well, that's it for this episode of MapBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments and queries by email to thecrew@mapbytes.co.uk, or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What in the name of sanity are you doing? It's my new side hustle. You haven't got time for that, man. Why not? 18 months plus into lockdown, I need some relief from these idiots. You have no idea what they have in store for you. What are they up to now? There's a secret project to upgrade you. Upgrade me? How many times do I have to tell them? I'm positively perfect just the way I am. More than you already have, clearly. So what is it this time? It's an app called Siri Speech Study, aimed to improve your speech. For crying out loud. Timmy has evidently lost what's left of his tiny little mind this time. Crowdsourcing intelligence never works. She is certain to give it a try though, and have you waiting on her hand and foot. That is all I need. It's invitation only. Awesome. If she was the last Mac user on the planet, Timmy would still never invite her. I can get back to my side hustle. I'll make a fortune when SharePlay finally ships. Is your side hustle lucrative then? I don't know about lucrative yet. It's certainly chilly right now though. So why don't you just put some clothes on then? It's my fans. What fans? My only fans fans. What about them? They demand to see me as nature intended. Well I have to live with you, and I'd rather not be blinded by your illuminated backside 24-7. So put a case on it, before I put one on for you.